Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Profitability Podcast. I'm your host, Adi Pinar. No human-made thing would exist if an individual didn't have an idea or took action to make that thing a reality. But what compels individuals to take those first steps? Is it opportunism or passion or conviction or something else entirely? Every week on this podcast, I have a conversation with a fascinating guest, whether they're an entrepreneur, artist, musician, author, poet, or artisan, to learn more about how they live a life that is uniquely profitable. Today's conversation is with Catherine Dockery, founder of Vice Ventures, where she has raised over $25 million. The most interesting thing about Vice Ventures is that Catherine saw an opportunity to invest in good companies that operate in supposedly bad industries and are thus starved from access to capital. The first thing that struck me about Catherine is how clearly and consistently her mission makes its way into our conversation. This reminded me of the conversation I had with Sarah Moskov in episode four and how important it is to have this steady drumbeat in communicating one's mission, vision and values. Catherine and I spoke about standing up for the things one believes in, how important it is to overcome existing stigmas through extensive conversation and why passion itself might not be that important to creating something meaningful. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Catherine Dockery. Hey, Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. Yeah, well, we'll see you at the end of the conversation if you still think that's <laughs> exciting, right? So being here, Catherine, like, I would love to know kind of how you introduce yourself today, right, to someone that doesn't know you. And specifically, I'd love to know what, if any, right, what labels you actually use when you describe yourself or introduce yourself. Oh, interesting. I mean, I would say I introduce myself as the founder of Vice Ventures. So I think that's probably my identity. In terms of adjectives I use to describe myself, I think I'm, I'm an incredibly loyal person. I take phone calls from my founders at literally all hours of the night. I've been woken up at 2.30. It was a blast. And I also say that I'm like creative. I do like to like dabble in the arts, even though I'm like very clearly not an artist. And I would also say that I'm like a pretty quick learner. Gotcha. So, so I'm first curious, right? So founder of Vice Ventures, and we're going to get into Vice Ventures just now. I'm curious about kind of that decision to go with founder versus, for example, investor. Did that even come up for you? Kind of, yeah. So I guess when I was looking to leave Walmart, I interviewed a ton of consumer venture firms and all of these funds basically couldn't invest in vices. So I was like, which I thought and I continue to think is like one of the best investment vehicles. So for me, I had like a kind of like an identity crisis, I would say, when I left Walmart was do I go and join a fund like one of those like agnostic consumer funds, any stage, like no real thesis that I don't believe in, or should I go and try and see if I could launch my own fund in a category that like I believe has a lot of growth? And then I realized that I could be both a founder and an investor. <laughs> but why, like, like just pushing a little here, right? Yeah. So why in an introduction lead with founder versus saying founder and investor then? Just because I think my identity is more of an investor. Like it's funny, like people are like, oh, you're also an entrepreneur and I've speaking on panels about entrepreneurship. But at the end of the day, my job is to help my founders and help my entrepreneurs as an investor. So I think, I mean, I, I take that incredibly seriously and I'm very, very close with every single portfolio company. So I think that's probably why I identify more as an investor than an entrepreneur. 
Gotcha, gotcha. So you've mentioned kind of you know Vice Ventures there. For anyone listening that does not know what the kind of Vice Ventures is, like what is your the kind of your two three sentence kind of elevator pitch to what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So Vice Ventures invests in good companies operating in air quotes bad industries. And what we mean by that is that we invest in. So a great example is Lucy Nicotine. Basically, Lucy Nicotine is a harm reduction agent to e-cigarettes. Because basically, if you have nicotine in its purest form, it's no different of a stimulant than coffee. You're having caffeine every day, which is also very addictive, by the way. I know because it took me four months to stop drinking coffee. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so we're focused on harm reduction and vice products is basically what the message is. Gotcha. So, so most people will probably call that like having an investment thesis, right? And just kind of saying that this, you know, this is the focus of the fund. This is the kind of companies that we back, invest in, and help, right? Would you take that kind of a step further, and maybe not even further, just a step in another direction, and say like, does Vice Ventures actually have a specific mission or kind of values that you are kind of clear about and communicating? Yeah. So I'll start with the values question. And ethics. So at Vice Ventures, we don't invest in violence and we don't invest in any product that is either meant to harm somebody else or the byproduct is it is harmful to other people. So for example, we would never invest in tobacco cigarettes. That's just not a harm reduction agent and it's terrible. And then the mission. Yeah, so our mission is harm reduction and to educate people on what vices actually can be. And they all have to be like really bad for you at all. So a great example of that is the, another company we recently invested in, Parade, which sells sustainable women's underwear. And gotcha. they're eradicating the stigma of self-expression through underwear. Why do that? Why have those values and mission, right? Except for the fact that, not to say, like, taking out the fact that it seems like these are kind of, you know, bona fide kind of, you know, good things to pursue. But as an investor, as a founder here building a fund, like why is it important to you to kind of be very clear about what those kind of you know values are and what the mission of this fund is? Yeah, um, so I think it's important to have values when you're operating in a vice space, just because we're like part of the fun is that we built this community of founders. So the founders help each other. For example, like one of my CEOs spent two hours with another one of my CEOs, like talking about how to advertise and market in a vice world and i don't personally necessarily want to support companies that aren't focused on harm reduction or are focused on taking advantage of their customers or advertising to people under 21 or 18. so that's why i think it's really important to have good people but people that are also willing to work with each other and not feel competitive and be able to grow together so that's something that we're also cultivating here at vice ventures Gotcha. And do you think like those, like speaking of those founders, right, helping each other essentially, like, do you think like, if I ask them similar questions, right, around kind of what their own, whether for their brands and companies or for themselves, if I ask them, like, what is your values? What is your mission? Like, to what extent is there an overlap to what the mission values is for yourself and for Vice Ventures? Yeah, I mean, a great example of that is Lucy. Their motto or their theme basically is to bring nicotine harm to zero which really speaks on the Vice Ventures thesis. Another company is called Indos, and it's a vaporizer that actually measures vapor in milligrams so you can control your experience. So that's a huge harm reduction from like any other vape pen. For example, when you have absolutely no idea, or like doses, like you literally have no idea what you're inhaling. Like you're just inhaling for a certain amount of time. So this is a huge harm reduction agent to what's on the market now. 
What I love, already love, kind of you know, a couple of minutes into the conversation. What I what I love you kind of you know, hear you saying is that constant. You've mentioned harm reduction a couple of times now, right? And that's obviously part of that kind of. If I listen to anyone that's kind of very clear about the message they're trying to get out there, they're constantly drum beating this kind of not the same thing, right? But the similar kind of things from you know different angles because that is the kind of thing that people kind of need to hear before they eventually kind of latch onto it, right? So harm reduction. How much time do you have to spend? to get people to adopt the term, right? Because prior to me researching your work for this conversation, harm reduction is not a term that I'd come across. Yeah, I mean, it's a term that I say all the time. I've said it on television, I've said it on interviews. I don't think it sounds as sexy as, for example, like Vice Ventures does. So I don't think it gets the attention that it should. But I think it's like the concept of harm reduction, I think it's incredibly important for any community in the U.S. or the world. It, like, taking something that you enjoy and finding a version of it that won't kill you as fast, for example. Totally. So do you think, like, would you take it to the point where you would call that some kind of social good, right? Or like even you know, towards in the realm of social entrepreneurship? A hundred percent. What I'm, I'm still fundraising for the fund, but... I mean, one thing I always say is that we are, in a way, a social impact fund because we're investing in vices that aren't as harmful as their previous form of it. So we're actually investing in a better world, like, if you want to say it or not. Like, people are going to engage in nicotine. They're going to engage in cannabis. They're going to engage in alcohol, like sex tech. Almost everybody does porn. So if you could just talk about this stuff... I think it would really change American culture and the way that people consume and, and identify with all this stuff. Yeah, totally right. And I mean, I, like you mentioned American culture. I mean, I think that kind of having those almost taboo subjects or the subjects that aren't just kind of brought up naturally in conversation. Yeah. That happens worldwide, right? It's not just the American thing. And there's just so many kind of, you know, stigmas around many of these things. Many of those things that you've mentioned. Right? Totally. My, my mom does not know that I drink wine, for example. <laughs> wow, interesting. <sighs> No, I, that was a total joke. My mom knows that I, I will never smoke, but my mom knows that I absolutely love wine. So that's um, that was a little fub there. So I'm going to come back to stigma centers. I really want to do a deep dive. I want to just get back to just a bit of your background and kind of what led up to the founding of Vice Ventures, right? So the first question I have here is you studied a combination of neuroscience and finance, right? Yep. So why that combination? Like, where, <laughs> what, what, what is the impetus for that you know, combination? I mean, like, yeah. I mean, a great question. So my dad was a bartender, so I didn't really grow up with any money at all. So when I was in college, I was paying for college. I had to I had to babysit jobs basically to pay for my books. And I always took an internship every semester and every summer during college. And one of my internships, I was working on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And I found it so fascinating, like just so interesting, like the way the markets moved. And then I kind of realized that the markets don't necessarily move based on like earnings or if a CEO steps down or something. It's pretty much all behavioral finance stuff and like psychology that moves the market. So when I was down there, I wrote a newsletter that was supposed to be just for like the team I was working for. And it was, I wrote it like 6 a.m. every day, which is hilarious. I don't think I could get up at 6 a.m. now. <laughs> but anyway, I would write it between like 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. And it had like, it was one page. And the it like, I guess like three-fourths of the page was like, Walmart earnings are up. Microsoft earnings are down. Whatever. 
And then there was always an editorial piece that was like me trying to think of like why the market was moving the way it was moving, like based on human psychology. And that actually ended up getting spread all over the country. Like the Harvard Economics Club read it, which I thought was like very hilarious. And it went to like, I think like 15 different hedge funds, went to every single sell side desk. It got really popular. And then like, you know, when you're doing something well, you get like very, very into it because you have the confidence to be curious. So anyway, that blog ended up getting me my first job at a school. And it also made me realize that neuroscience was so fascinating. <laughs> I think what you're describing there, we've seen it kind of in, in this pandemic, right? It's in the markets where the market is performing, whereas the economy isn't, right? And, you know, so yeah. many people are making bets and probably almost kind of, you know, options trading, but doing so with equities that they probably shouldn't do that right which which is a total kind of you know human psychology thing and, and not an economic or financial consideration at all yep totally i mean i my husband's a trader and we work right next to each other so <laughs> i hear about it all day long <laughs> i mean i can imagine for for an actual trader this has to be the nightmare right because you're up against loads of laymen that should not be trading and should not be yeah 100 percent like Robinhood has done some pretty incredible and some pretty terrible things, I would say. Yeah. Well, I mean, talking about vices, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, Robinhood and them being in the news kind of recently, you know, with regards to the male that committed suicide because he went, like, it showed that he oh, owed yeah. them, I think, several hundred thousand dollars, right? Which was a mistake, right? And then he committed suicide as a result because he you know, figured, like, there's no way that I can pay this back. But I mean, so talking about vices, like people get addicted to to loads of things, which I think which was your point earlier, right? There's loads of things in this world and people always get addicted, whether they're you know, good or air quotes bad. Totally. Which is why I guess I'm doing what I'm doing. I think it's so important is that people can have these conversations and be like, you know what? Like I smoke weed every day. And if I don't smoke at four o'clock, I get a headache. Like maybe I should seek help. If you could have those conversations, I think there'd be a lot less addicted people because there'd be no shame in getting help, either for mental health care or for addiction problems. So let's go down that little rabbit hole, right? So how do you, with Vice Ventures, right, or you as Catherine Dockery, or any of your brands actually kind of start conversations? Oh, you mean like with consumers about addiction? Yeah, yeah, about vices, about addiction, about what these, about stigmas, right? So how do you start those conversations? Yeah, so I think a great example is a company called Mod that we invested in. And they're a sexual health and wellness business with vibrators and condoms and lubricants and anything that you would need to be to feel like you're intimate and romantic, they have. And they also started a blog called Modern, which basically talks about it's like how to clean your sex toys, like how to like tell your partner you want something else. If you're older, like how do you have sex when you're 75? So they like write all of this and this blog gets so much organic traffic just because it's literally filling a void. Like so it's like a great way to talk about intimacy and like how to use a sex toy and like all of that one on one because like there's tons of people who don't know how to do that. And interestingly enough, that is also how I found you, right? Like I found them first, right? Because my background being in e-commerce software, at least, right? So I'm familiar with them as a brand. Amazing. Um, and that's that. That's how I learned about about the work you're doing with Vice Venture as well. Wow, that's an amazing way to find me. It's one of my favorite companies. So, so I get that, right? So th here's a brand that is 
firstly, kind of has a positive message and a positive brand image that they're putting out there, right? And they're doing so in a generally kind of more taboo kind of you know area, right? But are there any other ways in which you kind of you know start a conversation? I'm wondering whether you mentioned Lucy, right? Kind of different kind of nicotine kind of product that's not a cigarette. Like I wonder. In Buddhism, they often speak about this notion that we only know light because we know dark, right? So having that contrast available. So I'm wondering if that's the way that those conversations get started by presenting someone with something completely different to what they're used to. You essentially expose the fact that between those two things somewhere, there's a conversation that we never had and we should probably be having. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. And I think a lot of the companies have kind of found their own ways to communicate that message. I think Lucy is one of the best examples just because the CEO, David Rentel, is a complete, complete genius and he's been able to communicate that. So if you go on the website, they say like, this is not terrible for you. Like this is, we're trying to reduce harm to zero. So I think that's like one way of them doing that. Another way is recess, which is like a CBD sparkling water. They connected with people on nostalgia, on this idea of taking a recess like almost every american i would say has taken a recess in their life so i thought that was like absolutely genius and if you go to their website they explain like what hemp extract is like what the adaptogens are in it like why it could be beneficial for you and like i think all of that is just so important to educate the customer or the consumer on what your product actually is do you think like i mean it mentioned loads of kind of words that i i can imagine many many people would not even know what they were right so i'm wondering how much do these brands and products essentially sell to very sophisticated people that are enlightened or smart or intelligent? Or is the kind of the, the brand and the messaging that strong and that coherent that they can essentially sell to kind of unsophisticated kind of, and I don't mean kind of sophistication here as a matter of intelligence, right? But sophistication and understanding this is a CBD product, this is what that actually means scientifically. Whereas I can totally buy into nostalgia as a kind of, hey, I'm going to take a bit of a break. I'm going to, you know, I, I'm on recess for a couple of hours. Yeah. Sorry, what was the question? So does it sell to sophisticated, oh, yeah, as well to sophisticated you know, kind of consumers versus unsophisticated consumers? I wouldn't say sophisticated versus unsophisticated. I would probably call it informed and most of the companies they're not which is why I invested in them they're not coastal fads like they don't it's not really hot in LA today or like San Francisco or New York but if you look at the data all over America like all the space between LA and New York like people are buying these products and they exist and the demand is all over the country it's not just city people so I think that speaks to the fact that like America in general is looking for a heart reduction agent in like every everything that they're doing because people are becoming more and more aware of wellness and this concept of self-care and taking care of yourself. Yeah. And I guess like a, a big part of that, right? I mean, you, you mentioned that kind of the notion of wellness and self-care. I agree. Seems to be a trend, right? And we get these cyclical trends in, in, in society and the right brands at the right time can ride you know, that wave to, to success. So Back to just kind of the start of the fun, right? So, because I really want to kind of figure out kind of what makes you tech here, right? So, you raised about $25 million from the likes of Mark Andreessen, total kind of, you know, internet and tech kind of, you know, OG, right? Wondering kind of what are you kind of in terms of, you know, Catherine Dockery, like which of your characteristics or qualities do you most attribute or kind of, you know, yeah, well, attributed that kind of success, you know, to, right? So, which parts of you really make kind of 
got that commitment and deal done? Because it's significant, right? I would say probably honesty. I'm a very honest person in general, like probably to a fault. And every time people were asking me questions about what I was doing and the sectors and how much funding I wanted to raise and what the team would look like, I was just like, I don't know. Like, I've never hired somebody before. Like, I have to learn how to do that. And, like, if they ask me, like, the TAM of some category that I'm not looking at at all, that I'm like, honestly, I don't know, but, like, I can get back to you. And then when I was waiting for commitments, like, a lot of companies, I guess funds as well, they email people and they're like, we're closing at the end of the month. Like, you got to invest no matter what. Like, blah, blah, blah. When people send me those emails, I'm immediately like, I don't want to work with you. Like, I don't want to work with somebody who's like a false urgency around investing. Like, there's a zillion other deals out there. Like, it's fine. Like, just go. So because of my experience with founders doing that, like, I just refuse to do that. And I would just check in and be like, for example, I'd be like, hey, Mark, is there anything you need from me to invest? Like, I'd be honored if you were my investor, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, these reasons in a bullet point. And I feel like that set me apart from other funds. That we were raising, we were like, we're having a first close in like three weeks. Like, you gotta get involved. And it just comes down to partnerships, too. Like, people don't wanna work with somebody who gives them a false urgency and doesn't respect their diligence time. Like, I would never wanna work with somebody like that. Yeah. And I think that's the interesting thing around kind of being very clear about one's values, right? You just mentioned honesty. I think there's two things there, which is firstly, it comes off as very authentic, right? There's no second guessing. Like this is kind of, you know, what you see is what you get with regards to a person that's clear about their values. You don't have to like their values, but at least you're, you're not left guessing how this person is going to act. But the second part is like values just as much as it's often something that you optimize for and you set this goal, I'm going to be honest. It also does exactly what you kind of described there, which is it draws a line where it's like, if something it approaches that kind of or breaches that boundary, then it's just a hard no, right? So it becomes very much a kind of North Star for how to make decisions and how to think about life and the actions one takes. Yeah, or just connecting with people. Like, I think part of the reasons why Vice Ventures has had the success it's had so far is because we're true partners to our investors. So, for example, like, I don't want to say the company, but they're looking to sell their product in convenience stores. So what did I do? I literally looked up a registry list of all the convenience stores in New York City and started calling them and be like, can you carry CBD? Like, can you carry nicotine? And providing a list for the founders so they don't have to do it. Like, I think just picking up tasks and like helping people, especially during COVID. Like I have more free time than I've ever had in my life. And if I wasn't helping my founders, like I think it would be a huge mistake. Yeah. And that's the kind of reputation one builds, right? In the industry, I think the surprising thing is often how small any industry is once you develop a bad reputation, right? Once kind of once we have a good reputation, then the whole world is kind of wide open there and you go kind of you know, do whatever you want. And as soon as you do kind of get a bad reputation, then suddenly everyone seems to know about that thing. So building a fund, right? I wonder, because I can have many kind of assumptions and a strong hypothesis about what I would imagine has been the hardest part about building the fund, right? But I would love to know from you, like what's been the hardest part in getting the fund to where it is today? From the very beginning, like I realized that I didn't have like traditional venture experience. Like I never, I managed a portfolio of like dozens and dozens of investments, but I never worked at a traditional fund. So for me, I used to write down almost every morning and I was like, what am I good at? What am I good at? Like, what am I doing today? Like, how can I make change? How can I push this along? And I think 
definitely the hardest part was like coming up with the confidence of being like, I know what I'm doing. Like, I know what I'm doing. Like, even though I was like learning everything as I went along, like, so I think that was the hardest part. And then also the second hardest part is that like, as people who know who've raised capital before, like, I guess pre-COVID, there's a lot of travel involved. So I was gone probably for like almost three months or two and a half months or something traveling to places like Phoenix, Arizona, where I ended up sleeping in a motel and there's homeless people everywhere because it was the only thing I could afford. Or I rented Airbnb in Palo Alto for $45 a night and it was bunk beds and you had to bring your own sheets. And I was like, that's actually where I stayed when I got Mark and Jason to invest. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, like traveling on a budget to raise money is just like a really difficult thing. And my credit card was like extremely happy, but... (laughs) Did you ever consider at kind of you're doing that and going through that just to quit and say, you know what, this is just not worth it. You know, th- these bunk beds without kind of, you know, sheets or this crappy motel in the middle of nowhere in Phoenix, Arizona, like hundred percent. Yeah. Like I mean, I'm I'm not somebody who quits, like I'm super loyal. So I was like I'm super loyal to the fund. I'm like it's happening whether or not people give me money, like I'll figure it out. But I guess like one thing that like served as a North Star for me is that Ben Witty of Recess, we actually started our businesses on like almost the exact same day. So just the moral support of like growing with somebody that you invested in and like growing with somebody who helped the business and all of that just gave me like a ton of confidence and didn't didn't make me feel like it was going to fail. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. So I'm wondering, you know, if I think back and listening to you in terms of kind of the origin of Vice Ventures, you have this mission, right? And I guess the part that we left out that kind of I, we've not mentioned that I know this is kind of you know, part of the Vice Ventures is the vice clauses that are generally kind of in other investment kind of your fund agreements that, that kind of prevents them from investing in these kind of companies, right? So, which is part of your kind of origin story. I'm wondering, like, you starting Vice Ventures, whether it is just a case of, hey, here's a great opportunity that I can pursue, or whether it's a, hey, this is a great way for Catherine Dockery to show up. Like, this is a me thing. <laughs> I would say that it definitely, like, I, I mentioned like I grew up with literally no money. And for me, it was a way that I felt like I could make a lot of money doing it just because I'm a huge believer in the categories. But at the same time, it also turned into like my, it, I mean, it's like my baby. It's like literally everything to me. Like I, it's what I do. I wake up in the morning, like I'm on my email, like I'm, I'm working probably to like 11, like watching TV at the same time. Like being a, a solo GP with eight founders is like, it's no small fries. I would say like, it's, it's a lot of time and effort and which I love and I love doing it and I'm learning, but like it is a lot of work. Yeah. And I guess that then flies kind of in the face of this notion that people should only work on things that they're passionate about, right? Because passion is, is something that you can develop over time. You probably won't start something if there's no interest in this space at all, or if it's only about opportunity and there's only kind of, you know, some kind of, you know, massive monetary gain if this is successful, right? But you probably also don't have to be the most passionate person about the thing that you're about to start. I would say that I don't think passion is necessary for success all the time. There's just so many workers who probably aren't passionate about what they do. Like my Uber driver, like three days ago, like honestly best Uber I've ever been in. Like he kept the speed limit. It wasn't like he slammed on the brakes all the time. Like I wasn't nauseous and he did a great job. But does that mean he's super passionate about driving a car? Like I have absolutely no idea, but 
I think I am passionate about Vice just because of my upbringing a little bit, but I am obviously driven by the money and I want the people who invested in Vice Ventures to have a really good return. I want to come back for fun too. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. I've, you know, having founded and exited two kind of, you know, companies, I, I'm hundred percent on the, you know, uh, there is a balance here between, yes, I did like the work, but yes, I also like the financial reward, you know, of that. Like what I'm wondering for you, like, how do you balance those kind of say internal validation things, right? The, the, the passion that links back to your upbringing, this notion of kind of social good or social impact in terms of harm reduction versus this kind of more external validation, which is hopefully the fund returns X amount on the capital that invested. Like, is there a tension? Is there a balance? How, how do you reconcile those things? Well, I think all those things are pretty similar because I think if you make money, you're going to make everybody happy and like the fund will succeed. And if it makes money, then we can prove that harm reduction is a true thesis. And I guarantee there'll be like a ton of like vice ventures 2.0s or whatever, like all over the country popping up, like once they see that the thesis actually does perform. Yeah. And then, so yeah, so I think it's like all pretty connected. Would you like to be known as the person that made the term harm reduction famous? I would be oh so honored if that were to happen. <laughs> I guess that's a fair question, right? Well, maybe it's just me projecting, right? But I mean, I think that notion of being relevant in the circles in which we move, I think that is something that is important to to many makers, to people that put stuff out there, right? So hence, like the question perhaps sounds very grandiose, but beyond loving that that actually happens, like is that something that you are actively trying to pursue or something like that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like I would love to be the voice of Vice. Like I get a ton of people, like I've had like pretty famous investors, which is shocking every time it happens, reach out to me and ask for my opinion on a company that's a Vice business. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Some of the times I just like close my computer and just look at my husband and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so it's just been like, that has been like such an honor. Like to think that people like want my opinion on something has just been such a surreal moment for me, to be honest. Yeah, that really resonates. So talking about that, I want to get to when we mentioned stigmas earlier as well, right? So if I gave you the floor and I said, you know, Catherine, like, just take me through what you mean with like conquering stigmas, what do you say? I think I would point to the company Parade. Before Parade, very few people, if anybody, uploaded photos of themselves just in underwear. And today you have thousands of girls and women who upload pictures of themselves in just Parade underwear because they feel like it's a self-expression. So that's conquering this whole stigma of like sexual wellness and like female underwear and understanding your body and like they're very, very body and like sex positive. So like I think that's a great example of conquering stigmas. And if any brand or person like wanted to, you know, help conquer stigmas, like tactically, what do you think are the ingredients to actually doing that? Creating a community, I think, is step one. Like a community of people who also want to upload pictures of themselves on the internet in just parade underwear. Like I think a community is step one because it also not only does it like create a farther reach of your vision, but it's also a group of people who are like cult fans of what you're doing. And like we'll buy every new underwear drop and we'll buy the parade scarf and all of that. So I think building a community is super important to overcome stigma. Yeah, gotcha. Because it's kind of like a tipping point thing, right? Like the more people, the, the more voices you add to that conversation, the more that kind of accelerates and then penetrates the mainstream opinion, which has created that stigma. Yeah, I would say like mainstream opinions usually are rooted from like decades ago or 
which is like super interesting to be like to think about that like for the first time in the world like everything is being recorded and like everybody knows authenticity in a brand like they want to know like are you giving back to the community like are you giving back to the african-american community like what are you doing to create systemic change so i think that is really important yeah totally so you're helping brands that are conquering some stigmas i'm wondering like are there any stigmas about yourself that you are trying to conquer as well whilst you're working on vice ventures that is the best question i have ever been asked in a media interview <laughs> interesting i guess stigmas about myself i like go to therapy pretty regularly and i think that's been like incredibly incredibly helpful for me as i started the fund just to kind of understand like exactly like what makes me tick, like what makes me upset, like how do I handle conflict, like how do I be a leader, how do I hire someone, how do I be a mentor, like all of these things were brand new to me and being able to like having a safe space to talk about it is incredibly important and I think more people should do it if they have the access to it. I think it's incredibly important for self-development. Totally. That really resonates. And I, like, I, I can share that about four or five years ago, my life completely unraveled and I had the best therapist that helped me put back together with pieces and prevented me from jumping off a proverbial cliff, not suicidal, but 100%. Kind of, uh, yeah, so, I completely understand. <laughs> Yeah. So for everyone out there kind of listening, like if you still believe that there is a stigma around kind of, you know, mental health kind of your know, challenges and seeing a psychologist or therapist, like there isn't. We're in 2020. It's OK to admit that you need help in terms of stigmas. Right. So I think just from the outside, I think if I think about stigmas that could kind of challenge the work you're doing, right, is the fact that you are young, you're female, right, and you're operating in an industry venture capital that has mostly been kind of older white male driven, right? Yes. Plus you're kind of, you're dealing with companies that already have all these other kind of specific stigmas that they have to kind of conquer as well, right? In their specific industries, right? Do you experience it in that way, right? Or do you feel that it's almost kind of flipped and because equality, for example, is such a mainstream topic at this stage that it almost creates space for you to kind of just go forth and create now? Or do you still kind of, you know, come up against those challenges with those unquestioned historic inequalities? Yeah, so I guess I have one story I can share that would probably really illustrate the question or the answer or whatever. I was at, there's like one fund that holds GP dinners. I don't know how often they do it, like I haven't gone back, but there was one GP there who was also a founder. I'm not gonna say anything who they did or what the business is, but when everybody was also like 20 years older than I was. So when you went around the table, everybody was like, hi, I'm this of this fund. Like, this is my thesis or like whatever. And it got to me. And I, at the time I was 26 years old and they're like, Catherine, like it's your turn. So I was like, I'm part of Vice Ventures for Concrete Stigmas, blah, blah, blah. And this person was just like, where do you draw the line? And I was just like, what do you mean? Where do I draw the line? And they're like, what you're doing is terrible. Like it's horrible for the world. And this person, I turned to them and I was like, you're a founder who literally created millions of single-use plastic to emotionally insecure women. So I don't think what I'm doing is all that bad. Like just throwing that out there. <laughs> so I think there's definitely like a generational disconnect in some ways of why like the work we're doing is important versus just like being an agnostic fund that invested every single consumer product from seed to series D or something. 
and I'm not hating on those funds, like, at all. Like, I think, like, some of them have great returns, and it's amazing. But what I am hating on is judgmental people who would much rather say something negative than, like, try to understand, like, why it's important. Yeah, I love that notion, by the way. That that makes a lot of sense, because I think we often, as human beings, find ourselves in this situation where we think that things are a zero-sum game, whereas in most cases it isn't a zero-sum game and it's actually a case of a rising tide lifts all boats, right? And yep. if we work together, then like we can actually build a, a better society. Cool. So I want to know whether you consider Vice Ventures to be your life's work, right? And I, I totally get that you're young and I can totally imagine that there's many more things that you want to do in the future, right? But just kind of getting some kind of pulse check on whether you think like this is something that you're truly going to do in the long term or is there something completely different that you imagine for your future? I mean, I definitely see myself doing vice ventures and having it be like a multi-generational asset management firm. And to do that, you need to scale intelligently, uh, like really intelligently. So like we have a full-time analyst starting in September and I did so much research on this person. To understand like where they came from, what like what makes them tick, what does this, what does that. I called all of the references, had like thirty minute conversations with like all of this guy's references, and every single person was just like, "There, he's great, he's a genius, he's so good, he's wonderful." So it sounds like you are planning for this for the long term, right? And it yes. sounds like that there is enough belief and passion. Um, in this mission, coming back to kind of the things we spoke about earlier, right, around the mission and the values that you can imagine yourself taking this into the long term. And I, I and I would probably kind of, and you, you feel free to disagree, my gut feel there is, is because those things are so closely aligned to your individual kind of values, it's much easier to imagine yourself doing this in 5, 10, 25 years time, right? Oh, totally. How do, I mean, I hope we're the size of like, one of those big funds that you see, like, but like twenty years from now, and I don't see why we couldn't. Like, all of our companies in our portfolio are succeeding and doing super well. So, like, it kind of proves the thesis to be true. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely, again, from the outside, it seems like you have a lot of momentum, and like, it does not seem like that kind of notion is is a moonshot. So, final question. I like this question because it kind of gets, you know, speaks about endings, right? And it touches on the previous one, which is, I want to know, like. Do you ever think about legacy, right? And if you do, like, what would you like Catherine Dockery to be remembered for? I think thinking about legacy would probably give me an anxiety attack. <laughs> um, but if I do, why? like, the, why? What, yeah. I just don't spend that much time thinking about myself. Like, I don't find myself super interesting. So I find, like, reading about other people's legacies to be, like, way more interesting than, like, thinking about my own, to be honest. But if I do have to, like, spitball something, I would say I would love the idea of, like, like, as you said, like, harm reduction thesis. Like, I would love it if that's what I was, like, remembered for. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've committed on the podcast that you are going to be called, like, the genesis of harm reduction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So hopefully that continues. Awesome stuff. Catherine, thank you so much for the conversation. If anyone wanted to kind of follow along with what you or Vice Venture are doing, what is the best place for listeners to follow along? I mean, our website, we put up-to-date companies, we put up-to-date media stuff. I mean, you could also just Google the fund and like a lot of things come up. If it's a company or if it's an investor that wants to invest in Vice Ventures or they want money from us, you can pitch us at info at viceventures.com. Awesome stuff. I'm going to link all of that up in the show notes. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you. This is super fun. Thank you so much for making me think so hard. <laughs> awesome stuff. Thanks, Gaffer. That's it for me for today's episode. If anything in today's conversation really resonated with you, please do send me an email on ad at lifeprofitability.com. That's ad at lifeprofitability.com. You can also leave a review on iTunes, which helps me to improve the show and perhaps also helps me to reach someone else that needs to hear this or might find this helpful. I'll be back here with another great guest next week. Cheers. <laughs>